Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, I'm Jonathan Safran Four, and I'm going to be reading today from my new book, Eating Animals. Uh, I'm going to begin at the beginning. So here we go. When I was young, I would often spend the weekend at my grandmother's house. On the way in, Friday night, she would lift me from the ground in one of her fire-smothering hugs. And on the way out, Sunday afternoon, I was again taken into the air. It wasn't until years later that I realized she was weighing me. My grandmother survived the war barefoot, scavenging other people's inedibles, rotting potatoes, discarded scraps of meat, skins and the bits that clung to bones and pits. And so she never cared if I colored outside the lines as long as I cut coupons along the dashes and hotel buffets. While the rest of us erected golden calves of breakfast, she would make sandwich upon sandwich to swaddle in napkins and stash in her bag for lunch. It was my grandmother who taught me that one bag of tea makes as many cups of tea as you're serving and that every part of the apple is edible. Money wasn't the point. Many of those coupons I clipped were for foods she would never buy. Health wasn't the point. She would beg me to drink Coke. My grandmother never set a place for herself at family dinners. Even when there was nothing more to be done, no soup bowls to be topped off, no pots to be stirred or ovens checked, she stayed in the kitchen, like a vigilant guard or prisoner in a tower. As far as I could tell, the sustenance she got from the food she made didn't require her to eat it. In the forests of Europe, she ate to stay alive until the next opportunity to eat to stay alive. In America, fifty years later, we ate what pleased us. Our cupboards were filled with food bought on whims, overpriced foodie food, food we didn't need. And when the expiration date passed, we threw it away without smelling it. Eating was carefree. My grandmother made that life possible for us, but she was herself unable to shake the desperation. Growing up, my brothers and I thought our grandmother was the greatest chef who ever lived. We would literally recite those words when the food came to the table, and again after the first bite and once more at the end of the meal. You are the greatest chef who ever lived. And yet, we were worldly enough kids to know that the greatest chef who ever lived would probably have more than one recipe, chicken with carrots, and that most great recipes involved more than two ingredients. And why didn't we question her when she told us that dark food is inherently healthier than light food, or that most of the nutrients are found in the peel or crust? The sandwiches of those weekend stays were made with the saved ends of pumpernickel loaves. She taught us that animals that are bigger than you are very good for you. Animals that are smaller than you are good for you. Fish, which aren't animals, are fine for you. Then tuna, which aren't fish. Then vegetables, fruits, cakes, cookies, and sodas. No foods are bad for you. Fats are healthy, all fats, always, in any quantity. Sugars are very healthy. The fatter a child is, the healthier it is, especially if it's a boy. Lunch is not one meal but three, to be eaten at eleven, twelve thirty, and three. You are always starving. In fact, her chicken and carrots probably was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. But that had little to do with how it was prepared, or even how it tasted. Her food was delicious because we believed it was delicious. 
we believed in our grandmother's cooking more fervently than we believed in God. Her culinary prowess was one of our family's primal stories, like the cunning of the grandfather I never met or the single fight of my parents' marriage. We clung to those stories and depended on them to define us. We were the family that chose its battles wisely and used wit to get out of binds and loved the food of our matriarch. Once upon a time, there was a person whose life was so good there was no story to tell about it. More stories could be told about my grandmother than about anyone else I've ever met. Her otherworldly childhood, the hairline margin of her survival, the totality of her loss, her immigration and further loss, the triumph and tragedy of her assimilation. And though I will one day try to tell them to my children, we almost never told them to one another. Nor did we call her by any of the obvious and earned titles. We called her the greatest chef. Perhaps her other stories were too difficult to tell, or perhaps she chose her story for herself, wanting to be identified by her providing rather than her surviving. Or perhaps her surviving is contained within her providing. The story of her relationship to food holds all of the other stories that could be told about her. Food, for her, is not food. It is terror, dignity, gratitude, vengeance, joyfulness, humiliation, religion, history, and, of course, love. As if the fruits she always offered us were picked from the destroyed branches of our family tree. About half an hour after my son was born, I went into the waiting room to tell the gathered family the good news. You said he, so it's a boy. What's his name? Who does he look like? Tell us everything. I answered their questions as quickly as I could and went to a corner and turned on my cell phone. Grandma, I said, we have a baby. Her only phone is in the kitchen. She picked up after the first ring, which meant she'd been sitting at the table, waiting for the call. It was just after midnight. Had she been clipping coupons, preparing chicken and carrots to freeze for someone else to eat at some future meal? I'd never once seen or heard her cry, but tears pushed through her voice as she asked, How much does it weigh? A few days after we came home from the hospital, I sent a letter to a friend, including a photo of my son and some first impressions of fatherhood. He responded simply, Everything is possible again. It was the perfect thing to write because that was exactly how it felt. We could retell our stories and make them better, more representative or aspirational, or we could choose to tell different stories. The world itself had another chance. And now I'm going to read uh, a short bit that ends the first chapter, and it's a monologue. This is in my grandmother's voice, and it's very representative of the kinds of stories she would tell us at her kitchen table on those weekend stays. So I won't try to imitate her accent. I wish I could, but I won't try to. Um, I will simply read her words. We weren't rich, but we always had enough. Thursdays we baked bread and challah and rolls, and they lasted the whole week. Friday we had pancakes. Shabbat we always had a chicken and soup with noodles. You would go to the butcher and ask for a little more fat. The fattiest piece was the best piece. It wasn't like now. We didn't have refrigerators, but we had milk and cheese. We didn't have every kind of vegetable, but we had enough. The things that you have here and take for granted. But we were happy. We didn't know any better. And we took what we had for granted, too. Then it all changed. During the war, it was hell on earth, and I had nothing. I left my family, you know. I was always running, day and night, because the Germans were always right behind me. If you stopped, you died. There was never enough food. I became sicker and sicker from not eating. And I'm not just talking about being skin and bones. I had sores all over my body. It became difficult to move. I wasn't too good to eat from a garbage can. I ate the parts others wouldn't eat. If you helped yourself, you could survive. 
I took whatever I could find. I ate things I wouldn't tell you about. Even at the worst times, there were good people too. Someone taught me to tie the ends of my pants so I could fill the legs with any potatoes I was able to steal. I walked miles and miles like that, because you never knew when you would be lucky again. Someone gave me a little rice once, and I traveled two days to a market and traded it for some soap, and then traveled to another market and traded the soap for some beans. You had to have luck and intuition. The worst it got was near the end. A lot of people died right at the end, and I didn't know if I could make it another day. A farmer, a Russian, God bless him, he saw my condition, and he went into his house and came out with a piece of meat for me. He saved your life, I said. I didn't eat it. You didn't eat it? It was pork. I wouldn't eat pork. Why? I asked. What do you mean, why? What, because it wasn't kosher? Of course. But not even to save your life? And she said, if nothing matters, there's nothing to save. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 